Hello and welcome to the podcast, Enemies from War to Wisdom. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the often confusing and painful issues that surround human hostilities. In this way, we hope to open the door to greater curiosity, dialogue, and discovery between people who are poised to be enemies, those who are opposed to each other or have been hurt and rejected by each other. Our goal is to help us all enter into the wisdom that prevents chronic conflict from leading to alienation, fragmentation, or war. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist who is the director of Emma Troop, an experimental theater laboratory in New York City. And I'm here with co-host Polly Young-Eisendratt. She is an author, speaker, psychologist, and psychoanalyst. While we come to these topics from each our own perspectives, Polly and I bring insight from our own lifelong dedicated practices of Buddhism that inform everything we do and think. We hope you find our conversation useful and that you will join us again and again. And now the podcast. In today's podcast, we're going to be looking at rejecting humiliation and hostility as a means of relating to self and other. If we embrace an uncompromising rejection of racism, sexism, or other means of demeaning or dismissing other humans as inferior, how can we proceed in relating to others with whom we have conflict of needs, status, or ideals? How can we conduct ourselves as we restrain or constrain our destructive feelings and emotions? How can we make our anger and needs known in a way that does not compromise our sense of injustice or meaning and does not create more hostility, hatred, or humiliation? In this podcast, we will talk about setting mindful restraints as the basis for open dialogue. Welcome, Polly. Thank you, Eleanor. You know, we've been building up to a point where we can talk about the kind of, let's say, overarching framework for dealing with hostility and hatred within a frame within a bigger view of uh, wanting to stay together and uh, you and I talked in one program about how our identifications can actually lead to a constant kind of othering like if we identify with our bodies with our skin color with our, the way we look, or we identify with our tribes, our families, or with our religion, that that will always set us up against somebody else. And because that is in the nature of the human self and the way that it identifies with being something and not something else. So today we're going to try to put that into a larger framework about how to speak about and approach others when we fundamentally disagree or do not like the things that they're saying. And I wanted to start out with um, reminding us that we came to a place in the podcast where we talked about identifications, where we said it was possible to identify with being a member of the human species. Oh, right. That if you have a fundamental identity... And I wanted to sketch that out a little bit before we get into talking about the particulars, because I think you said, well, we can identify with our fundamental humanity. And sometimes humanity, it seems to have a connection to ideals about being humane or acting in a humane way. I I want to be really sort of as cautious as I can be 
about what human beings may or may not be capable of. And so I would say, I would look for trying to identify with the species first, and then maybe in that identification, eventually finding what it means to uh, have a core of humanity. Or find common ground with another who we differ from. Finding common ground. So without even thinking in terms of finding common ground or finding a common humanity, we can just think about, you know, the form that we're in is, uh, it's a particular species and uh, it's called Homo sapien. And that form has been around for a long time. I mean, obviously it's adapted and evolved in various ways, but it is actually uh, a species that we could be interested in, and I am interested in it, from the point of view of, um, of who we are and what we can embrace as our own identity. This does not mean that we have a feeling for the common humanity that we share or that we share a common humanity because often that sounds kind of idealistic like we all share let's say even to say we all share a desire for happiness which I do believe uh, his holiness the Dalai Lama often says you know everyone wants to be happy and they want their their families to be happy I think that's true and at the same time I think if you investigated what happiness is for any particular individual you'd find that there are differences with other individuals. Right. So, right. you know, it's it's very hard to find common ground. It's it's really hard because actually as a part of uh, being a homo sapien, we have these fundamental self-conscious emotions and those emotions tend to make us feel self-protective and also to compare and contrast ourselves with others. They don't tend to make us find what we have in common with others. And then, as we mentioned earlier, the fact that most human emotions are negative. We are critics. We're tremendous critics of everything. So we walk into a new situation, we see what's wrong with it. We meet a new person, and we, we think about what we disagree with or how they're different from us. And often we don't focus on what happens that, that goes well or what happens that actually produces uh, a new sense of common ground. Instead, we go back to our dislikes, our arguments, and our um, negative comparisons with others. Now, I, what I would say is that that is the nature of our species. That is not something that is inherently individual, that we're all programmed that way. So if we know that, then we have an advantage in not taking it so seriously. We don't assume that we have an angle that is so exclusively right based on our own ideals, our own religion, our own point of view, that we should actually destroy other people for our ideals. Now that's been at the very essence of war through time. War has been mostly about ideals. It's less about uh, protecting yourself or um, capturing resources. Uh, maybe it was in the beginning, but that's been gone for a long time. So this idea that we are a certain kind of species, that species is very negative, it is a very critical species, it's hyper self a protective, hyper self-conscious, with when there's no self, 
So it's just, you know, it's this terrible kind of irony that there is no self, but we're hyper self-conscious. We're hyper-conscious about our own identity when there isn't any such thing. So given that we are programmed that way, we're designed that way, we're motivated that way, that's who we are. So I would like to start by saying, let's embrace that. This is the way we've arrived. We don't have a choice. You know, right now, I'm not a dolphin, and I'm not a chimpanzee, I'm not a bonobo, and I'm not an <laughs> elephant or any of those other things. I am this homo sapien type of thing, and I would really like to understand it. And I do fully embrace the way that this organism is made, and it's made to be very hypernegative. Now, because of that, we also have accomplished this tremendous dominance of the planet. I mean, we've been able to see what's wrong and to try to solve problems and bring things under control really, really quickly. It won't be possible to do that completely because of the nature of reality. Reality is such that it's impermanent, it's limited, and really it is dependent on so many variables that we don't know about. We'll never be able to get things perfect or right or anything like that. But we do manage to, you know, design and make a lot of things based on our needs. So on the positive side, all this negativity, all this self-consciousness and so on, allows us to do something called abstract reasoning. We can remove ourselves from our immediate situation and we can do mathematical reasoning, we can do logical reasoning, we can solve problems that we didn't even know existed, like how do you get to the moon when you've never been to the moon? So that's the species, that's who we are. So if we identify with that, instead of with our tribe or our family, our skin color or our ideals, we then can begin with a common ground, knowing that it's going to be difficult for us to get along with each other. This is not a piece of cake, you know, whether it's occurring in the family or between nations or in cultures or anything, it is not going to be like, oh, let's just you know, make a circle and sing Kumbaya. That's just right. not going to work right. because that's not the yeah. way we yeah. Requires operate. serious, serious practice. It requ- Whatever the practice is, but serious practice to, to awaken and to have the kind of mindfulness that allows you to hold that capacity and allow for the possibility that there can be a dialogue. Well, the mindfulness itself is because of the organism. I mean, we're in this well, can form. Can you say, say more well, about the? I mean, you know, you the maybe you know maybe the elephants naturally practice something like mindfulness. I mean, it's possible that they do. They they seem more contained than we we are usually, but uh, what they can't do is they cannot stop in the midst of an aggressive action and change that action Uh they can't survey themselves they can't say you know last night i didn't do a very good job right let me apologize today none of the other animals can do that so we can use this thing called mindfulness which in the original pali word that was called sati and sati really means to remember or to recollect Uh it means that we can in any given moment, remember that we have a different option. Uh So when you're in the middle of your reactivity, you can say, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I could do this differently. Oh, and so then we could take a step back and then we can do this whole thing of decentering, looking at our motivations, looking at what's going on within ourselves. This mindfulness practice is this capacity to remember that we have a different way of doing things 
than our impulses. Right. So that is really something that is a byproduct of being this kind of organism, this kind of negative intending, kind of <laughs> rolling with what's wrong, uh-huh. kind of seeing ourselves as different from and, you know, in contrast to and so on. So the very things that in our makeup that make us self-conscious and that predispose us towards having difficulties with each other also give us these gifts for being able to take a step away from ourselves and solve problems and actually solve the problem of ourselves to operate on our own thoughts and feelings. So all of that, that's all in the organism. It's all just part of the equipment. So that's our equipment. And what if we said, okay, let's embrace it. Let's just say, this is what it means to be human. So where would that lead us? I mean, the very first thing I think that it leads us to at least where it leads me, is to recognize that nobody has the answer. Right, right. There isn't any individual who could know exactly what to do about the problems that are here. Consequently, we need each other. And we need particularly the people who've had different experiences from us, who have different points of view, who have different appearances, who have different body types, who have different lenses, and why do we need them? Because that will give us a bigger picture of what's going on at any moment. And why is it so difficult for us to get that? You know, you've brought up many times at this point in our culture, we have these terrible sorts of culture wars going on when people can't really even speak to each other because they have opposing views or they have opposing ideals. I... I think to boil it down really simply is that there is this tendency to feel like we know what's right if we have certain ideals. You know, um, I saw this sign that said, you know, may peace prevail on earth. That's a great ideal. I hope for the same thing. However, peace, in order for peace to prevail, you have to start with your own thoughts and feelings because it cannot be an ideal. As soon as it becomes an ideal, you impose on somebody else how they should reach peace. And do you think that ideals are kind of outside ourselves in the sense that when we start to look within or we start to understand as a species that we have these and we have this internal life and that we could we can change things by changing things internally within ourselves, which is what gives us, you know, the foundation for choice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I wonder if idealization just keeps it outside of us. Well, we don't have to go in. We don't. But have it's to... kind of an ideal to say that we can even, um, you know, that we can analyze ourselves. There's there's an analytic ideal in that. But I, the way that I think of ideals is I think of them as kind of like guideposts that you shouldn't take too seriously. You know, like if you see if you see a sign in the woods that says the trail that you're on is going, you know, like it's all blue markers, let's say, and you see the blue marker sign says, you know okay, it's going over the side of the cliff. Well, you have to check out, is that really the way the trail is going or is that marker maybe a little wrong? Maybe it was right years ago, but maybe now this cliff has come along. So you have to deal with reality versus the marker. And I think ideals would be like, okay, it's wonderful to have the ideal that we we will never have war again. Right. 
how do you bring about that ideal? Right. You know, you cannot bring about that ideal by just embracing it like it's a reality, like there's some way not to have war. Instead, there has to be some sense that you yourself have a responsibility right. for not warring with the people around you, and that if you could learn a little bit about not warring, then possibly you could talk to some other people and find out if they could find a way not to war with you, but you'd have to then really stop warring with something that might be really rough to let go of. And my, my feeling about ideals overall is that they are <clears throat> always set above reality and, and especially above the reality of your own mind and heart. So, you know, you're saying, okay, ideally, I would like to be a creative person. In reality, I spend almost no time creating anything. So ideally, it's almost irrelevant that I would like to be creative unless I bring it into reality. And then once I start to practice that in reality, I'll find that it requires other sacrifices. Right. So it's not an ideal any longer. Right. Now it's a, it's a choice or a priority or whatever. Um, so there's a way that ideals, I've come to feel overall that ideals are at the very basis of war and at the very basis of hatred of your beloved and at the very basis of a lot of hostilities because they set out, they set you towards something that really doesn't fully exist. There isn't a way to get to peace, for example, or to get to um, to get to calmness or whatever, except to go through uh, all of the negative experiences yeah. that you have, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, personally, I would hold my ideals really lightly, and and actually even hold my um, ideas about solutions very lightly. I'd like to stick close to the fact that I'm a homo sapien, that I'm motivated in a pretty critical negative way. I like to know that I also um, have all these reactive tendencies because when I know all of that, then I can work with it. Right, you know, if right. I think it's somebody else, right. I, I'm not going to be able to yeah. work with it. So, Well, it also reflects back on what you're saying about true love. Yes, in the sense in the that the sense that it's a, it's it's I mean it's an evolutionary template in the sense of, you know, waking ourselves up to a deeper wider understanding of what it means to love yeah. self and other and also how do you deal with the other if you just you have no sense of self even if the self isn't within us or or is illusory, or whatever you want to, you know, the Buddhist point it's of view. It's an interactive about. process. But it's I interactive. like the fact of the oh. interactive. Right. Because yeah. it's also interactive with yourself. Yes, yes. You're because always you, making the story. This is who right, I am. Right. This is the kind of person I am. These are the things right. I believe in. These right. are the places I go to. Right. And then you're making someone else <clears throat> up in your mind, right. too, who's not like that. Who but doesn't the degree have to which we can, we can have that interactive relationship with ourselves as we know ourselves, it makes it, I find it makes it easier somehow to um, to be present and, and have that deep listening with another where I don't have to be projecting all my stuff and then where I can step back yeah. and hear another and meet another in their difference and you know and and pay attention to you know say the reactivity that's going through me but not not become um, reactive 
you know, not acted out, not acted out impulsively. Or when I think now about, you had once said something that really caught my, my, my ear when you said, you talked about the path of non-harm and to, and to, you know, to develop that awareness as well in, in, in the same way as something that you cherish. Mm-hmm. Well, you, know, you cherish, cherish it because it, it because it works. It's a it's a path to practice it like yeah. every day right. in all ways. Yeah, to just keep noticing where you create, you know, dissidence or 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 um, you know, you 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 break things apart or you create separation or divisiveness or whatever. But to have that awareness, it just helps you to um, in the larger, you know, to be part to partake in the larger story in a well, sense. And then you start to trust yourself yeah. because you can go anywhere yeah. with people of any kind of belief or any kind of appearance and you can be interested in right. them. Right. And even when they trigger you. Right. Even when they say things that the way that people talk about it now make you feel unsafe. Yeah. You know, I I don't think people make you feel I think you feel you don't, you're not, no one else is really in charge of your feelings and your thoughts. And so when you're, when you're triggered and you are feeling unsafe, you need to check with yourself what's going on at that moment. Or how you deal with humiliation or how you deal with rage coming at you or how you deal with, you know, oppression or any of these, you know, any of these you know, very wounding, very destructive, destructive yeah. emotion, yeah. emotions, Inter- interactions, yeah. yeah, emotions, emotions. So the you know the Buddhist said in the Dhammapada, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, yes. unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. Right. So your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded. Right. But once mastered. No one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. That's beautiful. Yes. And so, you know, where I would include my thoughts in this, okay, you know, so all of us have these narratives that we run, which we call our feelings, and they're connected to our emotions, as we said. There are there are opinions, ideals, narratives, stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and who the other people are, et cetera, et cetera. If you can start with the thought... I'm a homo sapien. I am actually pretty negatively motivated. I have as much aggression as the next person. I need to keep working with that in myself and to be interested in it because actually if I transform all of that, it becomes a creative path to wisdom. I mean, that negativity, that sort of reactivity and the sensitivity that we have to all these differences and so on, when that is turned in the favor of let's actually get to know each other, let's have more togetherness, let's have more picnics, let's have more common ground, then those same thought processes, those same narratives actually begin to serve you well in terms of greater openness, greater trust, confidence in yourself, creative potentials developing and so on and so it really is you working with your own thoughts and feelings that opens the door to any sort of peace or freedom it is not the other person right and so given that then you know let's let's talk about the whole issue of any kind of racism destructive attacks on people based on how they look 
or destructive attacks on others based on their sexual orientations or the way they dress or their language or their belief system, you know. So where does that begin? I mean, where does it begin and in a moment when well, if you, you see if you someone? Have, if, you have, if you have a sense of, I mean, in a healthy sense, regardless of what level you're at, if you have a sense of accountability that you have respons- you have a responsibility and, and you're accountable to, to your actions, that does, that does give you a, a, a powerful stepping stone in terms of being able to contain your own vulnerability and not throw it on another mm-hmm. in order to get, mm-hmm. to get, to find your own, um, stabilization again by just, you know, throwing it, you know, like throwing it at another. Well, well, let's say that it, it's a good idea to begin with notion that you, that your thoughts and your feelings and your reactivity are actually more important than how anybody else looks or anybody else's point of view it's very empowering religion uh, right. whatever you right. know it's your own thoughts and feelings if you if you begin with your own thoughts and feelings and you even take the step back and investigate when you are triggered you can then recognize number 1 you are also homo sapien and you're having maybe a very negative reaction maybe you feel afraid so people say i feel threatened you know emotionally threatened in moments of fear or threat our reactivity is to make us either active or passive aggression uh, aggressive either we're actively aggressive or we're passively aggressive if we feel threatened and afraid if it's a true danger like if someone has a gun in your face yes you should do something to protect yourself most of the time in your life, no one will be having a gun in your face. Your reactivity when you feel threatened most of the time will be an emotional reactivity to your own associations that are going on in regard to whatever the other person is saying or doing. Well, you know, one of the things that was very helpful to me in the early days when, with, with Buddhism was the, the notion that everybody has Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. So no matter how negative the situation is, no matter how crazy you, you, you are in relation to what's going on, you, keep, you, you hold in your mind the awareness that this person in front of you has Buddha nature. Or when I had my audience with His Holiness the Dalai Lama many, many years ago, and it was the first time I heard anyone talk about we're each, other, we're each the other's mother in another lifetime. Yeah. That was a yeah. radical, radical right. concept for me at the time, but it was being said by the Dalai Lama, which had a tenderness and, a, and a, an opening for me, and, and the way many of the uh, Tibetan Rinpoche's always said that to us. You know, we were each mm-hmm. the other's mother mm-hmm. in another lifetime. It just right. opened up a kind of opening in the heart, and then also an opening in the mind. But that was, a, that was like a mantra, that was like a phrase, that was like a picture of the mind that helped one when one was in an explosive or, or heavily ne- negative situation or, you know, being abused by another or whatever. It can help you see that you have a common ground. Yeah. And sometimes, though, it may not be possible to get to such a broad common ground, you know. I mean, I, I think of, for example, racism as a, a case in point that racism is you know first of all it's been very much built into american life there is an institutional or structural aspect to racism in america because because america was founded really on a slavery culture but america is not alone in that 
many, many nations and many cultures have been founded on slavery. That's right. And that's, again, in part because we're homo sapiens and because homo sapiens have actually treated uh, others in their own species as being inferior to their tribe. So we've had a tendency going back in eons of time to create a sense of identification with our own tribe and then a disidentification with some other aspect of some other people, some other homo sapiens, or in maybe their early times, there were other kinds of humans. They weren't all homo sapiens. That sense that you identify with your tribe and somebody else is a threat or someone else is inferior, that somewhat, I think, has to be addressed on an individual basis that you have to come to see that that has been habitual for homo sapiens and that you are the person to stop with yourself doing that, you know, so that you you saying. check it, you check it in yourself. If you find yourself afraid of somebody by the way they look or how they're dressed so that you check it within or, yourself. or where they're yeah. walking or whatever the thing is, you check that with yourself and say, what is that? What is the narrative that's going on within me at this moment? And to know that we all have that potential for a narrative. It's not like, oh, I got rid of that one. Because we all have these assumptions, people call them blind spots, they're unconscious assumptions that we bring to any new situation. And again, as we've said many times, we're gonna to try to protect ourselves based on our assumptions. Uh, and so in a general way, if we begin with the idea that we all have these aggressive components and that we all have hidden assumptions, and um, so how can, we, how can we handle ourselves in a situation where we feel threatened, where we feel unsafe, and where we feel triggered? Well, there are a couple of things, and again, they, they come in part from um, teachings of the Buddha and, and in part from psychoanalysis, you know, just um, the, the one thing that we've been talking about is that ideals tend to lead automatically to something called splitting. When you hold very high ideals uh, for anything, whether it's for peace in the world or if it's for making a profit, uh, there is going to be a natural um, scapegoat or some other who is against your ideals. And that sets up right away a sense of an enemy. Oh, it's this person's fault. Just like a scapegoat in a family. If a family can't deal with conflict, they will find one person that they feel causes all the problems in the family, and they'll start to project the problems into that person, and eventually that person will identify with being the problem and begin to act like a problem. And so that, that sort of setting up ideals, splitting, and then something that's called projective identification, where you project and the person identifies, will set up enemies in almost any group and will certainly set them up in regard to yourself and other tribes. So it's a good place to begin to realize that your ideals can lead to setting up enemies. And don't you also think that we live in a culture that doesn't give us a lot of airtime in terms of how important it is to deal with negative emotions? In other words, we try to avoid them, or we try to rise above them, or we think something's fundamentally wrong with us by engaging with them. So yeah. as much, or, or you know, we, it, it, it's in the way of our goal, and well, it's, it, you know, and, and I would say that um, 
So I mean, I don't think there is a culture right now that's out there that is really very versed in the emotions. Like if you look anywhere in the world, there there hasn't been a real understanding of the human emotions until really about the last 20 years because we haven't understood the way the the brain actually is structured, the limbic system and so on, nor have we been able to see that all cultures communicate these emotions outside of language. Right. So, you know, it's only been fairly recently that we even have this uh, kind of knowledge. And I don't think there is a culture that um, is particularly versed in being wise about these kinds of reactivities. Uh, One reason why we're doing this podcast is because I felt like I would love it if somebody else got these ideas out there, but I didn't think anybody was getting them out. So I thought, well, we should try to do it. Um, So back to the the issues of, of hostilities, when you're in a situation where either you're feeling threatened or you're feeling afraid, you have to check with yourself and you have to work within yourself to know that your ideals actually might be your worst enemy because they're setting up a self-other kind of situation in which I'm this kind of person and you're that kind of person. But you can have beneficial ideals that help you. Your beneficial ideals you have to hold very lightly. Yeah, because you, hold them you, know, lightly, you have to you hold them have lightly. To... It's like the yeah. blue sign on the, if it's going yeah. over the side of a cliff, let right, it go. You right, know, it's, right. it's like, yes, I, I think it's better to always go step by step with right. the reality of or if in, you know, in a, a moment. sense of, you know, is this harmful or is this not harmful? Yes. Is this kind or is this not kind? Right. Is this right. is, is this, this working? Is right this now? working or you know am I being responsible for my own judgment or or I or, 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 or am I aware that I'm in you know unconscious reactivity right now? That's right. That's all right. of that kind of stuff. Um, by by being aware of that, you yourself have all these these motivations to protect right. yourself, to be aggressive, and so on. Then you begin to get a little bit more humble about right. your opinions right. and so on right. and you begin to look at is this working one of the ways that you can begin where there is really a conflict is to find some sort of common ground and the common ground may be simply that you're in a situation with a bunch of people and you have to find the solution to whatever the problem is you know like for example if you're if you're in a, a meeting and you all need to decide whether this money should be given to this project or that project you're there in order to make that decision if you keep on remembering that that's the reason that you're there you all want to reach a decision then you can sometimes relax a little and not feel so threatened by the insults that might be thrown at you or if somebody you, so you might be throwing the insults. I mean, somebody said recently who was at one of the Vermont town meetings, he said he was talking to somebody uh, about closing the schools uh, that are the small schools here, and he did not like this person. And he knew this person over time and felt like that other person was always on the wrong side of the issue. But he decided instead of saying, I, I really disagree with you, he would start by saying, I really respect you. I've seen you in all of these meetings. And even though we have different views, I know you work hard. And I think you're a good person. And he said, as soon as he said that, the other person shifted and took a deep breath. And they began to talk to each other. Now, um, again, going back to the issues in the way the Buddha taught them, uh, just because I think he had a clear vision about this um, idea of your thoughts being your worst enemies rather than other people. It's very practical. It's very practical. And so basically he said, 
that you will hold on to nothing in your life except the consequences of your actions and your speech. In other words, everyone around you is going to die. You will lose all of your belongings. You cannot hold on to anything. It's impermanent and you are of the nature to grow old and to get ill. So if you cling on to any of those things, they are not the important things. The important things are your actions, the consequences, and your speech, the things you say. So if you see that as a fundamental thing, you begin to see other people that way too. You see this person, no matter what this person believes, if this person has spoken in a kindly manner, if the, if the person also has greeted you regularly, shared some cookies with you or whatever, that you can begin to see this person through their actions, not the way they look, not, not the opinions that they hold. So that if we can begin to see each other more in terms of our speech and our actions and address those in ourselves, we don't have the tendency then to make enemies based on how people look what tribe they're in, or what religion they have. And I think it's a whole sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a refined way of being a human, recognizing, number one, that as homo sapiens, we have freedom in changing our actions midstream. And also, we have the capacity to step back from ourselves. We don't have to act on our impulses. And also, we have the, ch- we have the possibility of checking on our feelings of threat. We don't have to go with feeling unsafe. We can check, am I really unsafe here? Or do I need to, at this moment, be more open to what the other person is saying and begin to investigate it? So, you know... It's a a powerful, powerful teaching. And it it, it it does... does, um, I mean, you think about the the real value of educating. Yes. Of being able to educate each other. And, you know, and again, with, with this deeper wisdom or, or, or practicality as well, because it gives us tools to help us really have choice. Well, and to have tolerance, the yeah. tolerance really being yeah. the tolerance of our yeah. own thoughts and feelings. A lot of people are criticizing the word tolerance right, right now. I know, that's, I'm noticing that. Yeah, it, it's, I'm noticing uh, that. you know, yeah. and I yeah. think it's a, somewhat of a misunderstanding of the way I would understand yeah. tolerance would yeah. be my ability to tolerate my own experience right. without right. reacting in a way right that basically creates some other person as being the problem. Right. And where you know. we also deal, I mean, we in, in our culture too, we have such extreme victimization and, and it makes it harder for, for the individual to kind of get outside of themselves. Yeah, and In order with, to get inside of themselves. They're yeah. so victimized, they feel so abused, they feel so, that, that, that the, the healthy thing for them is to um, outproject their rage. Or well, their, yeah, if you identify with a tribe, yeah, of those right. who have been harmed and victimized, then you right away you have to have a perpetrator for yeah, that harm, yeah, and yeah. you know and that doesn't mean that you don't solve those problems, right. but it's just that do you want to create more enemies? Do you want to right. create more otherness? Right. Or can you stand with a confidence in your own ability to work with your own thoughts and feelings and act in a way that actually is in line with the possibility of becoming much more human? and more capable of sharing that common ground. So the common ground that I share with others is that I don't know the solution yes. to the world's problems. Yes. I need other people to find the step-by-step solution and to know that homo sapiens, 
we have this tendency towards all this critical way of viewing things, judgments, sense of that things should be fair, that we know exactly how things are. Those are actually shortcomings and we need to keep on addressing them from the point of view of, I can't know that by myself. To find a lasting solution, I need others, and the, particularly the others who see the world differently from me. Right, right. You know, because then we can work together and we can make a common ground that's based on our needs and desires. Right, right. Um, so, you know, to be radically against racism, radically against sexism, radically against demeaning others, you have to work with your own tolerance of your own thoughts and feelings again and again. And with the notion that you're a homo sapien, you fall short of many, many ideals all the time. And you need others in order to get to a point where that you might be able to find a solution. So that's kind of the way that I look at the, uh, the kind of radical rejection of any kind of demeaning of others. Well, this is a very, very hopeful conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, Polly. This is very, very powerful. Again, and, and just um, uh, reinforces the, the, the meaning of the word educate. Thank you. Educate, teach. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies for More to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.